Irish Nation. Notre Dame wins in a route, pull away late, and now crack into the top 10 in the polls with a 4-0 start. Maybe more importantly, though, the Irish actually slip back to number 22 in the SP Plus ratings. Big week for Brian Kelly. Top 25 win while passing Newt Rockney as all-time leader in ND wins. And a big week for Guyrish Talk as both of us got to go into the game together with friends. Uh, it's been a while since we've been able to do that, so it was nice to get back to that sense of uh, normalcy and just enjoy a home game live and get some tailgating in too, even though we had to wake up at basically <laughs> six in the morning. Totally worth it though. As you can tell, Brett's voice is gone. He was keeping uh, the energy level up quite a bit in our section for the first three quarters. And then after that, Chris Tyree, yeah, he took it over from there as Brett's voice really started to uh, let the team down. Yeah, and it's uh, still not back. I'm, I'm going to be questionable. Get game time decision to see if the voice will be back for the Cincy game. But <laughs> good news good news for the Garish Talk podcast. We went viral on Twitter. Uh, got a retweet from Bill Connolly of ESPN. So I guess we're, we're famous now with over 38,000 media impressions. Also got into a bit of a terse exchange with Bill, or uh, sorry, with Brian Driscoll and, and some of his followers over SP Plus ratings. But hey, the, the internet's always here to keep things interesting. Before we dive into the show, big request for all our fans. Please leave us a review, rate us, and most importantly, tell a friend about the show. We've really had a blast getting this show off the ground and, and look forward to growing more listeners. Brett, actually, he gets full credit for that SP Plus picture. Uh, we actually, in our, our group text for this podcast, we have like a, I would say like an unofficial competition to see who gets the most impressions on our on our tweets. So Leader right now, Brett clubhouse. definitely has the cat. Yeah, he is a pretty clear lead right now. Um, but anyway, so this week's show, we'll recap the Wisconsin game and then look ahead to Cincy. Then uh, this week's deep dive segment is taking a look at the coaching alternatives if ND had moved on from Brian Kelly in 2016 and how things might have turned out. We're going to skip listener questions this week, given we've been traveling back home from Chicago. So let's dive right into the Wisconsin game. We're in downtown Chicago in a packed stadium. We're going to go out there and we're going to fly around. We're going to play the game. We love to play. 41-13, very lopsided score in what was really a competitive game for about three quarters before Notre Dame's defense just took over. Or maybe more importantly, uh, Wisconsin's offense just collapsed down the stretch. This game was looking really dicey. Tosh Baker gets replaced at one point in the game en route to the offensive line, giving up six sacks. Now, I think a few of those are on cone to get the ball out a little bit earlier, but the struggles on the offensive line in the first three games were never more apparent than in this game. Granted, this Wisconsin defensive front was one of the best that we'll see all year, but the point still stands. Cone goes down with what sounds like an ankle sprain, so Drew Pine comes in, fumbles on the first possession, leads to a Wisconsin field goal. Then Wisconsin retakes uh, the lead 13-10 early in the fourth quarter. At this point, Wisconsin has about a 70% win probability, and that's not factoring in the momentum swing of now playing with your third-string QB and, and your fourth-string left tackle. But credit to this team, they generate a series of really amazing plays. They score 31 unanswered points. Obviously, the kick return touchdown by Chris Tyree, his speed was on full display. Notre Dame section we were in during the game was just going berserk as soon as it became clear he had a shot to take it to the house. Really fun moment. And then the defense forces four Wisconsin turnovers, a pair of pick sixes, in a blink this game really went from a competitive, close, low-scoring game to just an absolute rout. That Tyree return really brought out the juice in the in the crowd in the section we were in. They were even lifting me up and doing, uh, doing push-ups in the crowd, which I haven't done since senior year in college probably. Um, a lot of fun. But anyway, let's take a look at the advanced box score. Notre Dame, so they had a, had a post-game win expectancy of 
no surprise with Wisconsin committing five turnovers. So let's start with with the defense where Andy really won this game. They limited Wisconsin to a 34% success rate. Again, for context, offenses try to be in the 40s. So mid-30s, really solid against a good Wisconsin team. And then Andy's defense generated a lot of havoc, 17%. And if you break down the success rate and the havoc, Andy uh, allowed a success rate of about 15% in the first half, but relatively little havoc. Then in the second half, Wisconsin's success rate improved to about 45%. So they really started moving the ball. But then Andy overcame that with big play after big play. And that habit came in the form of turnovers, and really that was the storyline. I will say an important caveat with that higher second-half success rate is part of that may be due to a little bit more conservative uh, play calling on the defense once we actually had the lead, but I think regardless, they were moving the ball uh, more successfully in the second half. Yeah, we talk about this all the time. If your offense has a low success rate and is giving up havoc plays like Wisconsin did in this game, then the only path to success is explosiveness. Now, we said coming in, Wisconsin is one of the least explosive offenses. That's just not their MO. Credit Marcus Freeman giving up big plays has been the Achilles heel for Notre Dame, especially in the first two games of the season. But now two straight weeks, we've really locked that down. Wisconsin actually had a negative explosive rating in this game, which is really almost mathematically impossible. Usually that metric will range from about one to two. So that's about as bad as it gets to be less than one, let alone negative. They had the big 43-yard pass to the tight end early in the first half, a 35-yard pass to the running back, but the longest run of the game for Wisconsin was 10 yards. And so really just those two pass plays, Notre Dame did a great job of preventing big plays throughout this game. They really bottled up Wisconsin's run game, which was a perceived strength for the Badgers coming in. So all in all, you know, Notre Dame's Achilles heel was giving up explosive plays, and they just did not allow that in this game. The other storyline is Graham Mertz in big games. We highlighted this in the preview last week. Um, coming into this game, he had eight turnovers in three games against rake teams. Well, add five more to the total against Notre Dame. When the Badgers needed to respond with the score after that Tyree kick return, that's when Mertz really unraveled. For the game, he had negative predicted points uh, added. Complete, he completed only about 40% of his throws, and his pro football focus grade was 31 in the game. So... Not sure how much of this is really ND's defense being good or Wisconsin's offense being bad, but Jack Cohn certainly won the uh, QB matchup against his successor here. A few Notre Dame players to call out on defense. Bo Bauer and Jack Kaiser both graded out at 90. Bauer only played 21 snaps, but Kaiser out there for four, uh, sorry for 57 snaps. We highlighted both those guys in the preview. R- really big moments. Kaiser obviously with the highlight. Picking uh picking off Mertz and taking it to the house in the fourth quarter to seal the game. Cam Hart had two interceptions in this game, including a big momentum changing pick in the first half that led to Notre Dame's first touchdown of the day. He grades out in an eighty on pro football focus, a really nice day for him. The rest of the defense, no other grade higher than seventy. So that leads us to two takeaways. Really great team defense in this one. The the entire just defense played well together. Uh, but the pro football focus grades really suggest this was more a bad Wisconsin offense than a good Notre Dame defense. Last thing on the defense, clearly better than what we saw against FSU and, and Toledo. Kelly had an interesting quote after the game about the layers to Freeman's defense. Uh, some nuances where we hadn't fully implemented all the packages uh, to, at the start of the year. Still, still working on uh, diamond nickel packages, which are so critical to keeping a lead. Saw that struggle against FSU, obviously a strength against Wisconsin. Almost entirely different script in this game, with the defense getting better as the game went on. 
I also do think we're seeing the team uh, both getting more comfortable with Freeman's schemes and Freeman learning what exactly he can and can't do with his players, what combinations work, which ones don't. Flipping to the other side of the game, Notre Dame's offensive success rate was just 36%. And Wisconsin's defense had a ridiculous havoc rate of 28%. So on, on more than one in every four plays, Wisconsin had Notre Dame going backwards. Uh, ND's explosiveness was just barely over 1.0. So not as bad as Wisconsin, but really overall a tough day at the offense for Tom Reese going up against a really good top 10 Wisconsin defense. Kyron Williams and Chris Tyree managed just two yards per carry rushing the ball. Uh, we mentioned this already. Cone and Pine were sacked six times. Cone just completed 50% of his passes, only 154 yards. Drew Pine comes in relief, a, a great, you know, the Pine-Cone combination, as we like to say on the podcast. For the record, Mike coined that term about a month ago, so you heard it here first. He mm-hmm. completes six of eight passes, settles in after fumbling on his first drive throws the big touchdown to Kevin Austin to make it a two-score game. But overall, other than a couple of those highlights, it was really a struggle all day offensively. Uh, Kevin Austin had the 36-yard touchdown grab, but that was the only play over 22 yards for this offense. It really struggled getting it up and down the field. And the pro football focus grades, no surprise the offense graded out poorly. Kevin Austin led the way with 74, but even that, not the flashiest grade considering he had six catches, 76 yards, and the two touchdowns. Josh Logg and Zeke Krell both graded out to around 66 to 68. Uh, but the rest of the offensive line was 60 or lower. Um, as a reminder, any grade uh, below 60 is considered replaceable. Jack, Jack Cohn graded out at 57. Again, took some sacks that appear to be more on the QB than the offensive line and just overall struggled to move the ball. It seemed like there were a lot of uh, easy throws, a lot of like short passes that he uh, j- just lacked touch on. Yeah, some other crazy stats. Notre Dame scored 41 points despite their longest scoring drive being just 51 yards. So not once was the Irish offense able to go the length of the field. Seven three and outs in this game. It was the first time since at least 2000 in any college football game where a team won by 28 or more points and finished with fewer than 10 rushing yards. So look, Wisconsin's 1-2 and two now on the season. They'll drop out of the rankings. They've got a matchup against Michigan this week, so if they play well in that, could bode well for Notre Dame. Also for Notre Dame fans, we just got to hope we can squeeze out some more offense against Cincy and then hopefully move past the two toughest defenses we'll face all year. So with that, we'll we'll close out the Wisconsin segment, and before moving on to Cincy, we'll, we'll step back for some bigger season headlines now that we're a month into the season. These moments don't last forever. If you blink, it's over. Let's not let this day be over. Without saying, we played fast, we played free, we had one hell of a day. Let's go Notre Dame. We'll get to Cincinnati in a moment, but we're going to start with some of the biggest statistical headlines for Notre Dame. We're we're four games in, starting to paint a picture of the pros and cons of this team. Mike, you want to start us off with our first headline? Yep. So starting off with some advanced stats, offensive line is the talk of this team, and not in a good way. Jack Cohn has been sacked on 38% of QB pressures. So when the defense brings pressure, Cone is being sacked 38% of the time. 53 pressures have resulted in 20 sacks. The average for the country for context is about 17%. Ian Book was around 19%. So when talking about how is the offensive, uh, how is the offensive line doing, well, 53 QB pressures is good for 12th worst in the country. And total sacks allowed is tied for third worst. So 
The offensive line is definitely struggling, but Cone is taking sacks at about double the rate than average. We've said this a lot. Cone needs to get he needs to get the ball out. He needs to get through his reads quicker. He also needs to manage the pocket a little bit better rather than just taking a sack every time he feels some heat. Um, I'm not sure how you, how you coach that up, but if the offensive line continues to give up 10 or more pressures per game and the QB keeps going down on 40% of those, something's got to give. And that's where you're seeing a lot of these a lot of pundits out in the media calling for Pine and Buckner who are mobile, more mobile. And then uh, and then even if the offensive line gives up pressure, at least that doesn't translate into as many sacks because those guys are able to to avoid um, avoid those. Briefly on the run game, Pete Sampson at The Athletic had a great tweet. If Notre Dame rushes for 170 yards per game for the rest of the season, in the last eight games, 170 yards per game rushing the ball, this would still be the worst rushing season in Brian Kelly's tenure. Things are bad in the run game, and we can rule out Kyron and Tyree because we know what they're doing in the receiving and return game. They are elite running backs, and we can point to the offensive line because we see the pro football grades tell us this unit is struggling. But another advanced metric is line yards. Line yards per attempt is is an effort to measure the rushing yards per attempt attributed to the offensive line. Basically, how many yards does the running back make it before first contact with a defensive player on, on an average running play? And after first contact, then anything after that is attributed to the running back. Notre Dame is very consistently averaged between about 2.5 to 3.2 line yards per play really for the last 20 years going back to 2008 they've been in that range every single season this year just 2.1 that's a 33 percent drop off from where we were a season ago and that's the third lowest line yards per rushing attempt in the country so our offensive line is the third lowest in the country generating yards at the line of scrimmage despite one of the most talented position groups from a recruiting standpoint really in the entire country And to be clear, when we were at 3.2 line yards per play last year, that was only 38th in the country. So we aren't talking about an area where we were this absolute juggernaut, like I think a lot of people have assumed, but we've gone from slightly above average to really, really bad, really one of the worst in the country at generating penetration in the run game. So where are we going with this? Offensive line is a major storyline. Everyone is talking about it, and the advanced metrics are saying it's maybe even worse than what we were seeing with our own eyes. Most important run block stat for the offensive line, third worst. Most important pass protection stat for the offensive line, 12th worst in QB pressure. And then the pass protection, as we mentioned, is further exacerbated by a QB who's third worst in letting pressure convert into sacks. So stepping back for the season big picture, ESPN's win predictor actually has now jumped up for Notre Dame, projecting 9.7 wins for this season. Easily the highest projection we've had at any point in the year. It's been hovering around 8 to 8.5 wins. Uh, Of course, winning a 50-50 game like this against Wisconsin helps bump that up. But it's worth going through the schedule briefly. Cincy, Virginia Tech, UNC, UVA, Stanford, they were all roughly 50-50 games going into last week. And they've all flipped to projecting Notre Dame to win 60 to 70% of the time. A big theme across college football this year is chaos. A lot of close matchups. A lot of teams winning a game one week and then an inexplicable loss another week. Well, week four brought much, much more of that chaos. Just looking at Notre Dame's opponents on our schedule, UNC blows out a really good UVA team last week and then goes down to Atlanta and gets absolutely smoked by a rebuilding Georgia Tech program. Stanford gets blown out in their opener to Kansas State. 
Then they bounce back and blow out USC. And now this week they lose uh, to UCLA. UCLA team that started the year by beating LSU before losing to Fresno State. And then just briefly touching on the college football landscape. This show is, of course, focused on Notre Dame. But it's worth talking about this for a minute. Clemson falls to NC State. Oklahoma squeaks by West Virginia. Texas A&M thought to be maybe the biggest challenge to Alabama uh, until the SEC championship. They lose to Arkansas. Although Arkansas could potentially be quite good this year. Um, Number 14, Iowa State loses to unranked Baylor. Number 5, Iowa struggles against unranked Colorado State. So just a lot of weird games out there. Yes, ND has struggled at points this season. Definitely not a perfect team. The efficiency ratings don't think this is a top 15 team. We agree, but it's a weird college football season. So who knows? Irish definitely uh, could be in the playoff hunt, uh, even if they are a flawed flawed team. Guys, like I told you when we came out here, right? It's still about a game. It's still about playing a game of football. Lock in one play, six seconds. Are you kidding me? Six seconds. We're halfway done. We're halfway done. Let's go play and let's go win a football game. Let's go. Irish return home next week to take on the Cincinnati Bearcats. A lot of connections between these two schools. Of course, Brian Kelly, formerly, uh, was the head coach at Cincy. Some Cincy fans are still better at Kelly for leaving the for the ND job after their 2009 undefeated regular season. But before their matchup against Florida in the Sugar Bowl, Mike Denbrock is their current offensive coordinator. He was the associate head coach and former offensive coordinator in the early years of Brian Kelly's tenure, before the Kelly 2.0 shakeup that also included the firing of Brian Van Gorder. In fact, Denbrock and Kelly's ties go back to their days as grad assistants at Grand Valley State in the 1980s, and then again in the 1990s when Kelly was the head coach at Grand Valley. Denbrock was even a groomsman in Kelly's wedding. And then, of course, Irish defensive coordinator Marcus Freeman and defensive backs coach Mike Mickens held those same uh, titles at Cincy last year before coming over to Notre Dame this year. And last on this list, their number two uh, wide receiver should be familiar to Irish fans, Michael Young Jr., who transferred at the start of the 2020 season. So the coaching staffs know each other uh, well. A lot of great ties going into this game. The other big headline going into this game is Cincinnati head coach Luke Fickle. He's one of the hottest names in college football. You occasionally even hear his name as a potential future candidate to replace Kelly if and when he retires. Well, the USC coaching job is currently open after Clay Helton was let go. Fickle's name has been linked to the job as USC's new athletic coordinator, Mike Bone, was the athletic director at Cincy before this, and he actually hired Luke Fickle at Cincinnati. So a lot of smoke coming out of Cincy, certainly not uncommon for top coaches at group of five schools, just like we hired Brian Kelly from Cincy. What is surprising is that we're having this discussion in September. For sure. Uh, back to the game. This is arguably the hardest game on ND's schedule. Number 13 in the SP Plus, since he is, which is slightly behind Wisconsin and North Carolina at 10 and 11, respectively. They are up to number 8 right now in the AP Top 25, which is right where they finished last season in a 9 and 1 campaign before losing in a really tough loss, 24 to 21 in the Peach Bowl against Georgia. FEI ratings has this as the number 12 team overall, the number 28 offense, and the number 7 defense. So, Looking at a high level at all the ratings, really similar to Wisconsin, solid team around the top 10 overall, top 10 defense, and an above-average offense. Overall, this is going to be a really tough test for Notre Dame. Double-clicking on their season so far, they're 3-0, blowout wins over Miami of Ohio, who's right around the number 100 team in the country, and then against uh, FCS Murray State. So not too much to learn from those games. Their first real test was last week against Indiana, 
since he won 38-24, but really pulled away late, and that score masks how close this game truly was. IU really lost this game with four turnovers, including three interceptions, and rewatching this game, it wasn't like since he made great defensive plays, IU just made some inexplicable decisions. They really shot themselves in the foot. That included an interception at the six-yard line that set up Cincy to punch it in from six yards out. IU also gave up a 99-yard kick return for a score, a 30-yard punt return that gave Cincy the ball in field goal range. So all that led to a two-touchdown win for Cincinnati, but a post-game win expectancy of only 57%, and really their one challenging game this year against a Big Ten opponent. Yeah, they got there with this 20% havoc rate. Again, anything above 50% is very solid. So... They generated a lot of havoc, but success rate was nearly identical. 42% on offense versus 41% allowed on defense. And neither team really generated explosiveness. Cincy's explosiveness was actually less than 1.0 in this game, which for comparison, it is really hard to be less than 1.0 on explosiveness. That basically means you spent the entire game getting five-yard plays. Uh, They had zero plays of 30 yards or more, only four plays of more than 15 yards. This was a dink and dunk offense. So this should sound a little bit familiar, almost exactly the same preview we had on Wisconsin. Top 10 defense generating a lot of havoc, an above average, but not elite offense that lacks explosiveness, but doing a good, doing a decent job moving the ball. Yeah, pretty much reminds me of Notre Dame's offense against Wisconsin and Notre Dame's defense against Wisconsin. That That's how Cincy's looked so far this year, um, but the ratings like them just a little bit more in, in the efficiency bucket. Diving into Cincy's defense, they primarily run a 3-3-5 defense. Looks very similar to what Marcus Freeman coached last year. In 2020, they allowed a success rate of just 36%. That was number five in the country. Wisconsin was number six in the country. Their havoc rate of last year was 20%. That was number 14 in the country. So when we look at the Indiana game, sure, it's just a sample size of one. But Cincy is continuing its trend from last year. Top five defense driven by generating a lot of havoc. Uh, Irish fans are hearing that Freeman is generating that havoc with risk of big plays. Although Notre Dame has looked better now in the last couple games, uh, not giving up those big plays, but since he was still number 37 in explosiveness allowed last year. So certainly not in the top 25, but it's not like this team is getting torched. They were top 10, sorry, they were top 15 in plays allowed of 30 or more yards. So I'll caveat They played in the American Conference. It's a solid group of five conference, but some of these stats might be a little bit inflated by the level of play. But it's worth a reminder, the American is a conference known for explosive offenses, running the spreads, the air raids, tempo RPOs. They've got SMU, Tulane, Memphis. So sure, maybe weaker overall competition, but there's some really solid offenses that Cincy goes up against, and they generate a ton of havoc. They hang in there on explosiveness, and they just don't give up a high success rate. Focusing on their personnel, their defense lost several pieces from last year. Two big safeties are gone. They're replacing their number two pass rusher and leading tackler at linebacker. So four big starters are gone. But to be clear, this is a really deep defense. Pro Football Focus has graded this as the third best defense through three weeks of the season. All 11 starters have a grade of at least 70. That's just unheard of. Malik Vaughn is the guy to focus on here for the defensive line. Had one and a half tackles for loss in the Indiana game. But as previously mentioned, the whole line is solid. Darren Beavers is one of the best linebackers in the country. He's grading out at 83 by pro football focus. Had nine tackles against IU, including two tackles for loss. I mentioned these pro football focus grades. Kyle Hamilton 
has a grade of 81 through three games. Cincinnati has four defensive players with grades better than Hamilton. Now I get it, two cupcake games, but look, these grades adjust for competition. So that's wild how elite this Cincy defense is, is showing out to be so far. Moving to the offensive side of the ball, in 2020, this offense was number 31 in success rate and number seven in explosiveness. Now that was somewhat offset by allowing a havoc rate of 16%, which was number 76 in the country. As we mentioned earlier, that translated into a top 30 offense overall. In 2021, not much data other than Indiana, which was a struggle for this offense. They had a solid success rate, but as we mentioned, almost no explosiveness. They averaged just 3.3 yards per carry on the ground. Desmond Ritter, their quarterback, was so-so. He completed just 55% of his passes, 210 yards, and did throw an interception. So if you want to make the Wisconsin comparison, both of these teams have a top 10 defense where I give the edge to Cincinnati as the better team is because of their offense. Setting IU aside, this is a top 30 offense that can generate big plays, and we know the Irish defense has at times been susceptible to the big play, maybe less so recently in these last two games, but this is going to be a really tough matchup for Marcus Freeman. Looking at their, uh, yeah, looking at their roster, Desmond Ritter is the star. QB, third-year starter, projected to be a first- or second-round draft pick in the NFL next April. He completed 66% of his pass last year, really improved a lot, uh, versus his 2019 campaign. And Pro Football Focus has him graded as 88 through three games. That's number seven for QBs in the country. So one of the best QBs in the country, maybe with Sam Howell from UNC and Brennan Armstrong from UVA, this will be one of the best QBs Notre Dame will face this year. At the skills positions, top three wide receivers are back. Josh Wild, leading receiver from 2020. Michael Young, who we mentioned earlier, former Irish receiver taking advantage of extra COVID eligibility. He was an all-conference selection last year in the American and tied for the team lead in receptions. And then deep threat Alec Pierce. He led the way in the Indiana game. He had five catches, 86 yards, and a big touchdown. In the run game, they did lose their all-conference running back, Jared Dokes, from last season. He's been replaced by Jerome Ford. Ford was really bottled up in the Indiana game, just three yards per carry despite two touchdowns. Ford's pro football focus grade is still a 77 right now, implying some of the running problems against IU might be more on the offensive line, which we'll get to in a second. For context, Ford's grade of 77 compares to Kyron Williams of 71, so he has been really productive for the Bearcats. Yeah, you just previewed it. Maybe the biggest issue for Cincinnati is the offensive line. Sound sound familiar? Sounds a lot like (laughs) Notre Dame. They lose both tackles from last year, so just walking through the explosiveness of the Cincy passing game. Notre Dame's front seven is going to need to generate havoc. They're going to need to get after Desmond Ritter. They're going to need to limit the run game and control the line of scrimmage to really give the team a chance in this game. Stepping back, how do you think Notre Dame matches up in this one? Areas for optimism and concern? If you said Wisconsin was a bad matchup for Notre Dame because they had a very tough front seven against Notre Dame's offensive line that's inexperienced and struggling to grow into their paws, then you should reach the same conclusion about Cincinnati. However, we also concluded Wisconsin had some weaknesses. A quarterback that played down in big games, a secondary that was susceptible to big plays in the passing game. Since he doesn't have those obvious weaknesses, this is really maybe other than the offensive line getting two new starters— It's a really consistent Cincinnati team at every level of the roster. They grade out well across the board by pro football focus, highly touted in the advanced metrics. So this is probably as complete of a team that Notre Dame will face this year. Just don't really have a weakness on on the Cincinnati roster. 
The flip side is the elephant in the room, just raw talent. Cincy, no surprise, is a group of five team, has a 247 team talent composite that ranks number 53 in the country compared to ND at number 12. So almost across the board, ND will have four stars going up against a roster primarily composed of three stars or, or lower. Of course, it's uh, of course again, as we mentioned, it's Cincy, but just looking at the results of this team and how well they're coached, how complete they are across the roster, I think you throw the recruiting rankings out in this one and trust the results on the field. Uh, based on that, Cincy is a top 10, top 15 program, no doubt. Reason for optimism is guys like Michael Mayer, Kevin Austin, Kyron Williams, Kyle Hamilton, Chris Tyree. These guys just have a level of athleticism that Cincy isn't used to seeing. If Andy wins the game... Those ultra-talented, high-caliber players need to go make plays for ND. And if they do, I'm not sure since he has an answer if they, if they all bring their A game. It's just too much talent to overcome. But, again, these guys need to execute. Let's wrap up with score predictions. ESPN win predictor has Notre Dame winning this 58% of the time. SP Plus ratings has since he is about a 2.5 to 3-point favorite on a neutral field. Adjusting for home field, that makes Notre Dame about a 2, 2.5-point favorite. Despite that from SP+, early lines in this game uh, from Las Vegas have Cincinnati favored by two points. So basically, this game's a toss-up. Maybe the Wisconsin game's giving me a little false optimism here, Brett. Uh, But I I do feel better about this game. I don't know if I should. I will say Kelly really tends to have his guys ready to go for for big games, especially big home games. And I'm going to throw out postseason games here. Since he hasn't played in as many games like this one, and we're not entirely sure how they'll respond, I like that our defenses continue to improve each week, and I think they'll do so again here. Um, I'm expecting Cincy to struggle a bit to move the ball effectively against the surging Freeman defense, and I think we'll also generate quite a bit of havoc here and take advantage of Cincy's mediocre offensive line. Uh, on offense, uh, hold your breath. While Cincy has a solid front, I don't think that their front is nearly as good as Wisconsin. So maybe our offensive line won't look quite as incompetent here. Um, regardless, you know, I don't know that I would, I would bet on that. That might be, that might be like a big cause of, uh, of, of false optimism there. Um, but I do think, uh, I do think a healthy cone here will play a bit better than he did at Wisconsin. Again, he was, he was sloppy, sloppier than normal. Um, and then Buckner's supposed to be healthy. So we might get a nice change up there. And that could, that could be an X factor as well. This might be an aggressive prediction here, but I, I got ND winning this one 28-21. So I think this is the uh, – so, yeah, maybe maybe a little positive, but um, I think I'm drinking the Irish Irish Kool-Aid right now. So I've, I've just got to caveat my prediction. I have called the Irish to win in the first four home games. I, I did say they wouldn't cover against Florida State, so I'm now 3-1 and one against the spread. But I told our listeners not to bet on the Toledo game. So I'm going to adjust that one to say, even though I thought we'd cover, I said don't bet on it. So I'm, I'm going with 3-0 with an asterisk so far. And folks, I hate saying this, I'm also not going to bet on this game because I never bet against Notre Dame on the money line, but I don't see this game happening for the Irish. I think since he wins this one, I just don't see a weakness on their team. I think they're solid across the board. I think it's the best team we're going to play all year. And we know Notre Dame has some glaring weaknesses that we haven't cleaned up yet. So I've I've got something like Cincy twenty eight seventeen. Uh, my heart's telling me go Irish, but the analytics are just telling me objectively. I don't see Notre Dame getting there in this one. I sure hope I'm wrong, and I I hope I'm surprised uh, with a Notre Dame victory on Saturday. Yeah, I think this is the first time that we actually have picked opposite ends of a uh, of a game. So 
yeah, we'll we'll see what happens here. Hopefully, I think Brett will like. I think if I'm right here, I think Brett will obviously be happy. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is a tricky one. I even said like with my prediction, I'm kind of going with my heart a little bit more here. I kind of I know what the analytics say. I'm kind of going off gut feeling. Storylines like, you know, since he doesn't play a lot of games like this, will that really matter? Who knows? But um, yeah, I mean, since he is a good team, if we if we don't show up, they definitely will beat us. Even possibly even if we do show up, they they could beat us. So. Yeah, I guess we'll just see what happens. All right, with that, let's move on to our next segment and talk about what could have happened if Notre Dame let go of Brian Kelly five years ago. Van Dyke kicks it off. Picked up. Tyree. Here's Tyree with a lane. This next segment, we're going to dive into the alternate universe where Notre Dame fires Brian Kelly somewhere in the 2015 to 2017 season and and just decided to move on to greener pastures. Many Notre Dame fans wanted to fire Kelly after the disastrous 4-8 season that was 2016. We've recapped that season before. At some point, it maybe deserves its own segment, but just to remind our listeners of our take on that season, Notre Dame was 4-8, but they were 1-7 in one-score games. We had a post-game win expectancy of 93% against Duke in a loss, 82% post-game win expectancy against USC in a loss, Uh, lost a weird hurricane game against NC State that frankly should have been postponed like all the other games were in the region that week. So despite the 4-8 record, Notre Dame actually finished number 18 in the SP Plus ratings. That's really hard to do. It's really hard to statistically be a top 20 program in your efficiency and still go 4-8. and eight. But football is a weird sport, and weird stuff happens. And the 2016 Notre Dame season was about as weird as it gets. But 4-8, and eight, wins and losses matter, and Kelly's program failed. And I think it's safe to say that the majority of Notre Dame fans did not agree with us at the time and wanted Kelly gone. And even before that, we had won 10 games in 2015, but got blown out pretty bad in the Fiesta Bowl. Granted, there were a lot of injuries that year, but if you look at the, at the roster— we were uh, certainly not short on NFL talent. Uh, and then we had an 8-5 and five record in four of Kelly's first five seasons. And eight wins just isn't the Notre Dame standard, or really any of uh, the blue-chip college football program standards. Add to that several off-field scandals involving the football program, vacated wins from an academic cheating scandal, Everett Golson, the starting QB suspended for a season due to, due to cheating, and maybe most importantly, the deaths of two undergraduate students, Declan Sullivan and Lizzie Seberg, both involving the Notre Dame football program in different ways. In no way do we intend to mar the legacy of those lives with the coaching grade of Brian Kelly. Uh, really horrific stories that deeply impacted the Notre Dame community when, uh, when myself and Brett were students. But we wanted to mention those stories because on and off the field, there was a dark cloud over Brian Kelly's program. And we can debate how much of those events fall on Brian Kelly personally. I think very little. But it was a tough few years, and it culminated in fans and the media calling for the firing of Brian Kelly, with or without the 4-8 season in 2016. With that as the lead-in, we're now going to assess the alternate universe where Notre Dame does fire Brian Kelly and hires another head coach. There's always the bright, shiny new coach. This year, it's Matt Campbell at Iowa State or Luke Fickle at Cincinnati. They're on the top of every list for Power 5 head coaching jobs, such as the open position at USC. And so we assessed every single FBS coaching hire in 2014, 2015, and 2016. The three years culminating, obviously, in the disasters 2016, along with all the other off-the-field headlines and relatively pedestrian results on the field in the years leading up to that, 
We cut it off after 2016 for two reasons. Since then, Kelly's won 10-plus games, and only the most stubborn of fans would still like to see him fired. And secondly, it's much harder to assess whether coaching hires have been successful unless we've got sufficient data. So five years is about the time you need to see a coach's recruiting and on-field performance. So what are we starting with? 64 coaches were hired at FBS schools. Our first filter is to exclude a group of five hires. Look, Luke Fickle has done a great job at Cincy. He got hired in 2016, came over from Ohio State where he was the defensive coordinator previously. But he was not on any job boards for big-time Power 5 jobs at the time. He wasn't on the list of... uh, he wasn't on the short list of candidates as a replacement of Brian Kelly. Neither was the likes of Randy Edsel, Butch Davis, Jeff Tedford, Lane Kiffin, Sean Elliott, Major Applewhite, Jay, Nor- Jay Norvell, Brent Brennan, Geoff Collins, Mike Sanford. Heck, Sanford was hired as a G5 head coach coming from Mendy as the offensive coordinator. Maybe Charlie Strong, who went to South Florida. But after getting fired at Texas, not on the short list to land at a job uh, at a place like ND or really any Power 5 school. So our first filter is to exclude G5 hires that just aren't applicable applicable to a Notre Dame hire. That leaves us with 28 head coaches that were then hired at P5 schools. So here's a breakdown of where those 28 coaches came from. 10 were successful head coaches at group of five schools, such as Matt Rule from Temple to Baylor, P.J. Flack from Western Michigan to Minnesota. Another 13 were coordinators or head coaches at Power 5 schools, Kirby Smart from Bama to Georgia, Pat Narduzzi from Michigan State to Pittsburgh, And the other five, a mismatch of position coaches, NFL guys, coaches who are out of football. Interestingly, of those 28 hires, only one was an offensive coordinator prior to the hire in their most recent job. And that was Clay Helton getting promoted at USC. There was a wide receivers coach in David Beattie getting hired at Kansas. So maybe we'll call it two offensive hires. But all of the quote-unquote offensive-minded coaches were already head coaches somewhere else. But then the coordinators becoming head coaches at Power 5 programs all came from a defensive background. The other notable theme is internal hires or strong connections to the school. Six internal hires were that were already coordinators. Tom Allen, Ed Orgeron, DJ Durkin, Tracy Clays, Barry Odom, and Clay Helton. Interestingly, four of those hires were what we considered programs headed in the wrong direction, which we'll get to in a second. So Tom Allen, DJ Durkin... Tracy Clays, and Barry Odom all took over for programs that were struggling despite being part of that struggle. And arguably, we said USC was in the right direction because they were winning 10-plus games. But hard to say Steve Sarkeesian had that program headed in the right direction. Same for Les Miles at LSU, where Ed Orgeron took over. So it's not like these internal hires got promoted when a successful boss retired or took another job. Also, several strong connections. Jim Harbaugh returns to his alma mater. Same with Paul Christ at Wisconsin. Mark Rip, same thing at Miami. Kirby Smart, same thing at Georgia. We also classified each open jobs program trajectory as good or bad, as, as Mike just alluded to. Good meant the program won eight-plus games in either the immediately prior season or consistently winning eight-plus games in the four years leading up to it. Bad meant they weren't. We didn't make any adjustments here. So Baylor had a ton of turmoil following its sexual assault scandal but had solid recruiting classes. They had two 10-plus win seasons in the three prior years. So that one still classified as good trajectory, even maybe despite off-field issues. Les Miles at LSU, he gets fired for not winning the SEC West in the Nick Saban years, but that was consistently a top 25 program. 
Tracy Clays took over at Minnesota for Jerry Kill, a program that really started to find real consistency and and had six, seven wins, which for the Gophers is really solid. But still, we left that marked as bad trajectory given they weren't consistently at that eight-plus win threshold. So of the 28 programs, only seven were deemed on a good trajectory. Not surprising given most programs that are doing well aren't looking for a new coach. So those seven that were doing well were Baylor, LSU, Georgia, Miami, USC, Nebraska, and Wisconsin. Disproportionately, those are big-time programs that were winning eight, nine, ten games, but maybe not getting over the hump, or they wanted to try someone else, or they weren't quite getting all the way there to New Year's, New Year's Six Bowls, or let alone New Year's Six Bowl victories. So we're going to come back to these programs, because many of them look like Notre Dame, doing okay, but not great. And they decided to try their luck with a new coach. So how did these 28 coaches do? We looked at two metrics. One, are they still there? Do they have a tenure of more than five years? And two, have they made it to a New York Six, New York Six Bowl? We, we did make some adjustments. If you left already, but to take a better job, Matt Rule at Baylor, who's now in the NFL and was successful in his stint at Baylor, that's, that's a success. We also made adjustments for blue chip programs that maybe had success in one season, but haven't been able to sustain that. Who's in that bucket? Mark Ripp, uh, who has since been fired at Miami. Clay Helton, who got fired at USC. And Jim Harbaugh at, at Michigan. They checked the box of getting to a New Year's Six Bowl and having at least one 10 plus one season. But similar to ND, you've got to do that consistently. So by that standard, we would have said uh, Kelly was unsuccessful at ND in his first six seasons, culminating in the 4-8 and eight debacle of 2016, but successful since then. Those were the only adjustments we made. Rick, Helton, and Harbaugh. So then what's the scoreboard look like? 28 hires, only six have been successful, 21%. Those coaches are Matt Rule, Ed Orgeron, Kirby Smart, Matt Campbell, Bronco Mendenhall, and Paul Christ. Interestingly, Matt Rule left the NFL after short stint, arguably if he lands a job at a blue chip program like Notre Dame rather than Baylor, not sure he leaves for the NFL. The other five... Coach O wins a national championship, although it's starting to look like that might have been lightning in a bottle and folks already have him on the hot seat. Matt Campbell and Paul Christ at Iowa State and Wisconsin, they're both struggling this year. There's talks that they're on the hot seat. So who knows if that's really truly sustained, consistent success. So then it really comes down to uh, Kirby Smart and Bronco Mendenhall. And what's the common theme for these six coaches? Four of them took over for programs that we assessed as being on a good trajectory. Coach O, Kirby Smart, Paul Christ all took over for programs consistently in the top 25, consistently top recruiting. Those were really attractive jobs for head coaches to come in and be successful. What about the other 22? Common theme is that they were already on a bad trajectory. Clay Helton, Mike Riley at Nebraska, and Mark Rick at Miami. The only three coaches who took over for programs on a good trajectory and made them worse. Nebraska is really interesting. They won at least nine games every single year under Bo Pelini. The program got frustrated, uh, like many blue chip programs, that they weren't winning Big Ten titles. They fired Pelini. And it's been a mess ever since. Looks like Scott Frost might not even survive this season. If Indy fans want a case study on why patience with a successful coach is critical, even if we aren't getting championships, ask Nebraska fans how life has been in the post-Bo Pelini era. Of the 19 programs that were on a bad trajectory and haven't been able to turn the tide with a new co- new coach, a few highlights. Jim Harbaugh at Michigan. Maybe squint and say it's been successful at times. Clay Helton, Mark Ritt, Will Muschamp, Tom Herman, all fired. 
three guys that are probably still three guys that are still probably under assessment are PJ Fleck, Tom Allen, and Justin Fuente. PJ Fleck was one of the most commonly referenced names for Andy to go after previously, and I I'd say he's been fine for Minnesota. He's won, he won 11 games in 2019 and won the Outback Bowl, but his other records are five and seven, seven and six, and three and four. Um, and Andy just lost to Bowling Green last week, so excluding bowl games. He's only hit the seven-win threshold once. Not exactly the track record you're looking for in South Bend. Uh, Tom Allen, this is one that maybe deserves an adjustment. Indiana is not a football school, and Tom Allen has gotten this program to a level where 6-6 six and six going bowling seems like it's going to be a consistent outcome going forward. Solid hire for that program. Justin Fuente, off to a great start uh, this year with the win over UNC, a program Andy has played a lot. He took uh, over for Hall of Fame coach Frank Beamer at Virginia Tech. A lot of pundits had him on the hot seat this year. Uh, he started off with a 10-win season in his first campaign, but after that, nine wins, six wins, eight wins, five wins. So generally trending down every year, I think this is a, a pivotal season for Fuente's future. Um, so far, they have shown some signs of promise, but also look very inconsistent. So jury is definitely still out. Last way we looked at this was assessing coaching hires for Notre Dame peers. So the top of the top in college football jobs. We identified 10 of those hires, Oregon, Texas, Georgia, Miami, USC, Florida, Michigan, LSU, Nebraska, and Wisconsin. Only Coach O, Kirby Smart, and Paul Christ have been deemed a success. The common theme is that each of those three programs, LSU, Georgia, and Wisconsin, were programs that were already consistently top 25 programs and went looking for an upgrade. The other seven have failed. Six of those seven are already fired, and it sure looks like Jim Harbaugh is on the hot seat, a seemingly annual tradition in Ann Arbor these days, although I guess they're undefeated to start the year, so Ann Arbor fans are are once again optimistic. So even the big-time college football coaching jobs, it's not easy, and programs get these coaching hires wrong more often than not. So what should we take away from this? How do we apply this to Brian Kelly? For starters, Kelly consistently winning 10 games per year, really winning A-plus games in all but one season. That's that's not common. And the grass is greener uh, the grass is greener mentality to go replace that kind of consistency is short-sighted at best, flat-out silly at worst. Uh, I'm a big Cleveland Browns fan. I would uh, really like to avoid becoming the Cleveland Browns of college football. Uh, I, I will say, additionally, as a Cleveland Browns fan, the Pittsburgh Steelers, a team that I have loathed over the years, one reason that they have generally been very successful over the years is they have had very little coaching turnover. They have a lot of consistency. And look, not a big surprise. They've been one of the most successful NFL programs uh, of all time. I think the other takeaway is that trying to replace a coach when the program is in disarray just doesn't work. Only 14% of hires work out for programs on a bad trajectory. That's 0% for blue chip college football programs. It's a limited sample size, but the data has a pretty clear trend. So when Notre Dame was 4-8, and eight, but playing competitive football, and, and I want to caveat, playing competitive football, if you're 4-8 and eight and you're getting torched, I get it, move on from your coach. But if you're 4-8 and eight and you're playing competitive football, you're holding together the recruiting class. Mm-hmm. If you go and make a coaching change at that point in a program, it just adds more chaos. That's the type of stuff that will set a program back for years. Flip side of that argument is that there's pretty good case studies for taking a successful program to the next level with an upgrade. Kirby Smart and Coach O are two of those good case studies. Kirby Smart obviously hasn't won a championship yet. And as we mentioned, Coach O might be more lightning in a bottle, but 
still, it's much more likely for that next coach to supercharge a program that's headed in the right direction. So that makes me almost more supportive to fire Kelly after a series of eight and five campaigns. Or frankly, maybe even now. I know that's wild. I'm the biggest BK supporter ever. But just think about how attractive the ND job is right now. Today, tremendous stability, long-tenured president, athletic director, consistent top 15 recruiting classes. That's a once-in-a-decade scenario for a new head coach to walk in and find immediate success. Now, if you're going to do that, you absolutely have to get that hire right. It can't be for the latest flash-in-the-pan group of five head coach. It's got to be Kirby Smart coming home to his alma mater. Ed Ordron coming home to his home state where he played a year in undergrad before transferring. Paul Chris coming home to his alma mater. It's got to be a sure fire hire with all the right credentials and strong ties to the school. Or else you look like USC and Clay Helton or Nebraska firing Bo, Bo Pelini. Even Miami fired Al Golden for Mark Rick certainly hasn't helped the U, certainly hasn't helped the U start winning. So let's recap our takeaways. You want to make a coaching change when things are going steady and well, but looking for an upgrade. And when things are going bad, adding a coaching change on top of that can just lead to more disarray. And in general, coaching hires are a tough business. Only a 22% success rate. It's not even that much better for the best of the best college football programs. Only about a 30% success rate for new coaching hires over what's a pretty decent sample size. The grass is always greener. Hindsight's 2020. Uh, and Irish fans should stop with the calls to fire Brian Kelly. Frankly, they should be grateful. I know that's a hot take. I know that's controversial for some fans. But Notre Dame should be really grateful for Brian Kelly. 106 wins, now most in program history. For his pedigree, he's second most wins among active Division I football coaches behind just Nick Saban. And then a ton of recent success, four straight 10-win seasons, two trips to the college football playoff. Definitely room for the program to improve. We've talked about that a lot. Maybe we need Kelly 3.0, but in the very least, Kelly 2.0, he's proved the critics wrong. And coaching changes, it's just risky, and you're going to get bad outcomes more often than not. Okay, it's the last game for a lot of guys. Let's make sure that that emotion is then transferred into enthusiasm. We're going to close this week with a brief conversation on Brian Kelly. Huge congrats for win number 106, passing Newt Rockney for most in Notre Dame history. Not so much an obscure stat given how much attention this has gotten in the media this week. So we'll cover this segment in two what we hope are interesting ways. First, touch on Kelly's reaction to the milestone. And then secondly, preview an article from Pete Sampson at The Athletic. Really a great piece of journalism. Everyone should go check it out where, where he had a great lead into Kelly trying to chase down this uh, wins record. First on the postgame reaction from Kelly. Kelly, he's been eaten alive by Andy fans for how he handles the media with misstatements, not defending players, etc. And we think uh, that is just grossly overblown. If you listen to Kelly day in and day out like we have for a decade, he's a player's coach. Maybe not uh, in the sense that people think of one like Pete Carroll, but the players love him. Sure, there's exceptions and he's in the spotlight a lot. But this is definitely an area where the proverbial spotlight misconstrues reality. And there's no better example than this past weekend. Kelly could have gloated in the spotlight, made a big deal about his accomplishments, but he didn't. Here's an excerpt from uh, the interview. I'm just glad it's over with, really, to be quite honest with you. I'm proud of the accomplishment, but I get more joy in watching the development of a Drew Pine go in there and Chris Tyree getting after it. That's why I do this. You don't do this for 31 years because you're trying to beat Newt Rockney's record. I mean, no, I mean, no disrespect to Newt, but I'm just glad it's over with and we can move on to trying to beat Cincinnati. Pretty humble. And then the Pete Sampson article. We love Sampson. We talk about him a lot. Everyone should go get a subscription at Athletic just to read his writing alone. 
Sampson went and interviewed 10 current and former Irish assistants that coached alongside Brian Kelly, many of whom have been fired by Brian Kelly or left on seemingly not great terms. Chip Long, Clark Lee, Mike Alco, and maybe most impressive of all, Mike Dembrock. Now at Cincy, we mentioned early earlier in the episode, he's previously a, an assistant uh, head coach under Brian Kelly, a relationship spanning more than three decades. Denbrock was even a groomsman in Kelly's wedding. So the story that gets painted is one of Kelly as a CEO, a leader who helps put each individual in the organization in a position to succeed. Maybe one year that's running the ball, another year it's throwing the ball. It's making really tough personnel decisions like firing your groomsman after four and eight wedding. Don't worry, Mike. If the podcast goes south, I promise neither of us will fire each other. <laughs> uh, so here are a couple quotes from Chip Long. He could really relate to he could really relate to a lot of people in different ways. You always liked him when you left. He had this great way about him. I don't want to say politician, but he knew what to say. From Mike Elko, who turned down a contract extension at ND to go take the same position at Texas A and M. I'm not sure I'm first on his list on his Christmas card list, but we have a very professional relationship. I respect the hell out of him. Um, from Tony Alford, he allows his coaches to coach. He doesn't micromanage guys. He hires guys to coach and lets them do what they do. Another great story that came out of this article, Kelly has a tradition post-game where before he addresses the players, he meets with the coaches first and lets them provide input on what the post-game message is. Kelly wants to make sure that what he saw is what the rest of the coaches saw, maybe so he doesn't overreact to certain things, or maybe he missed something that should get emphasized. That's leadership. This is a highly compensated, highly successful coach, and those types of people often struggle to listen but he gets consensus from others in the organization. He's collaborative, and that's really telling on how Kelly has been so successful for so long with just a high degree of consistency despite a lot of turnover on his staff, despite the pressures of being the head coach at Notre Dame. We'll close out this segment by once again giving a shout-out to Pete Sampson. Really, really great journalism pulling that article together. Great read. Encourage everyone to go check out the full article. Subscribe to The Athletic if you haven't subscribed to it. Get a, uh, get a membership. All right. Well, uh, that's a wrap. Guy Irish beat Bearcats. Guy Irish. <laughs>